Setting coordinates. Outlaw located. Hi, I'm Ryan McCarthy, and welcome to The Stolen Goods. This podcast is all about outlaws, bandits, and scourges of the seven seas. Every week, we're going to take a look at a different one of these characters and learn about them. We'll shine the spotlight on some of the most infamous bandits, outlaws, and pirates in history, and even dig deeper to learn about some that maybe you haven't heard of before. I am not a historian, nor do I claim to be an expert on the topic. I'm just a guy who thinks this type of stuff is rad and wants to learn more about it. So grab your bow and arrow, six-shooter, and bag of and join me as we walk the plank and plunge into the lawless world of banditry and swashbucklery. Is that a word? Together. All right, and welcome to The Stolen Goods. My name's Ryan McCarthy. Thank you so much for spending half hour, 40 minutes, whatever it's going to be, with me. Uh, Ryan at thestolengoodspodcast.com, thestolengoods.buzzsprout.com. From there, you can check out the Facebook page, spread the word, share with your friends. Uh, if you are feeling frisky, uh, leave a comment and a review on iTunes or Audible. Leave some stars on Spotify or whatever else, whatever other uh, podcast uh, platform you're listening to this on. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, we spent a couple weeks talking about pirates, and then last week we talked about a hybrid, if you will, uh, Eustace the Monk, who was kind of a bandit and a pirate, and today uh, we are going back to the world of banditry, and and I've said it before that I uh, even though I do this podcast and and I find this stuff very interesting, I don't I don't condone. Any of it. I'm never actually truly rooting for these guys and gals because um, ultimately they are committing some serious crimes. But today, especially, I really feel like I need to point out that I do not condone this person's behavior. You know, some of the guys that we've talked about, like Tiburcio Vasquez, he was a victim of circumstance that led him into into banditry. Same thing with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They were they grew up in in these loving families, and for whatever reason, just felt the need this wanderlust, this need for adventure, and turned to crime. But they never killed anybody. Those two didn't. Harvey Logan killed a lot of people. But this guy that we're talking about today, we're talking about Harry Tracy. And Harry Tracy is a lesser-known bandit and outlaw, but this guy was a cold-blooded killer. And uh, yeah, not a lot of people know about him, but that's what we're here for, right? We want we want to we want to dig these these people up and um and kind of bring them out of hiding and there's obviously been Way worse criminals since his time in the ter- turn of the century. But this guy was a no joke, serious killer. So um, let's jump into the time machine and uh, let's get out of here and uh, let's go there now. So here we are. On October 23rd, 1875 in Lodi, Wisconsin, which it is believed to be where Harry Tracy was born. Now, I have read that he was born in Pittsville, Wisconsin, and Minong, Wisconsin. But according to a 246-page biography on OregonPioneers.com, written by David Chalk Corshane, 
The Lodi Enterprise, a local Lodi, Wisconsin newspaper, claims that Tracy was born in Lodi, but Tracy wasn't Harry's real last name. Uh, Harry Tracy was born Harry Severns, two parents Orlando Nye Severns and Sarah Catherine Atkinson. Those two crazy kids got married on January 12th, 1873. And then two years later, they had Harry in 1875. And according to a U.S. census in 1880, there was an Orlando Severns, Sarah Catherine Severns, and Harry Severns living together in Lodi, Wisconsin. On top of that, the neighbors said that the kid Harry was a holy terror in every sense of the word and would swear at his parents and would throw temper tantrums if his commands weren't obeyed. And according to Wisconsin newspaper, the Portage Daily Register, in the Friday, August 8th, 1902 edition, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Haggart distinctly remember the family living there. However, shortly afterward, the Severns moved up to Pittsville, Wisconsin. And according to the Pittsville Tribune, Harry was born there in Pittsville. Unfortunately for Pittsville, Wisconsin, I didn't find a U.S. census to back that up. So sorry, Pittsville. But while Harry lived in Pittsville, according to the Tribune, his chief ambition was to be considered, quote unquote, tough. Now, mind you, Harry was at his biggest, 5'5 and 160 pounds. So maybe he always felt like he needed to prove something. I don't really know. I'm 6'4", so I really know what that's like. Um, Orlando and Sarah had one more child together. On August 14th, 1880, Irva Edgar Irvy Severns was born, and he grew up, married Pearl May Kerr, fought in World War One, and died of a ruptured appendix at age 50 in 1930. Anyway, so everything was chugging along. Harry's got a brother, a mom, and a dad, and according to multiple sources, Harry's father was a bit physically abusive. Then, in 1889, they moved even further north to Chittimo, Wisconsin, which is right outside Menong, so that's where Menong comes from, and Orlando got elected as treasurer of the new school there and starts having an affair with this home-wrecking tramp named Cyrilda Ellen Davis, who he has two daughters with. Laura Serena Severns, born on July 7th, 1889, and Pearl May Severns on December 24th, 1890. And at some time around this point, he abandons Harry and his family and marries this hussy Cyrilda and moves to Kansas. And if there was ever an example of karma coming back to bite you in the ass, it would be when a year after Orlando Severns abuses his kids and abandons his family and moves down to Kansas, he gets hit by a train and killed at 43 years old. So the moral of this podcast is don't beat your kids and abandon your family or you will be hit by a train. Meanwhile, back in Wisconsin, in Chittimo, Harry is 16 now, in 1891, and he falls in love with this young lady named Eugenie Carter and wants to marry her, but he needs money. So he commits his first robbery, and he robs a post office of 160 bucks, which is equal to about $4,600 today. But he gets caught in the act and needs to flee. So he's kissing his sweetheart, Eugenie, goodbye. And he tells her that he'll return when he is, quote unquote, somebody. And just then, the sheriff catches up with him and Harry shoots him dead. So now it's official. He's an outlaw and he's on the run. So he bounces around for a little while and he shows back up in Missouri, now brandishing the last name Tracy, and nobody really knows where he got it from, but it's speculated that he did this to spare his mother any shame. 
Harry Tracy notoriously spoke highly of his mother and never harmed women and always treated them with respect. But this is where his life of banditry takes off, and it's said that Harry Tracy recognized the importance of money, but he didn't want to work for it, so he developed this pattern of robbing a bank or a post office or whatever, and he'd live off the funds until they dried up, and then he would rob some other establishment. Then in 1894, when Harry was 19, he made his way to Montana and linked up with a gang of horse and cattle rustlers run by this guy, John Shortle. But Shortle would get drunk at night and he would beat his Native American wife. And since Harry had a super high level of respect for women, this didn't fly with him. And one night he shot Shortle in the head. So that was the end of that. So he's roaming around for a little while, and somewhere around 1895, a miracle happens, and he runs back into his true love, Eugenie Carter, in Cripple Creek, Colorado, and they settle down on a little ranch in Idaho, and it seems like Harry really tries to go straight, but it would not be in the cards for him, and one day, Harry was minding his own business on his ranch uh, with his lady, and a couple of his horse-wrestling friends come to his property to lay low from a posse, but the posse finds them and surrounds the property. And for once, Harry had nothing to do with it, and Harry and Eugenie try to run, but Eugenie was shot and killed. And after this, Harry just loses his mind and starts shooting and killing three of the posse members, and the rest just run for their lives. And Harry lays his sweet Eugenie on the bed and takes off. And it is said that if he was bad before, he was worse now, and he blamed all of his woes on law enforcement. Now, at some point in 1896, he gets a job on Loon Lake outside Spokane, Washington as a logger. But after about a year, he gets accused of having an affair with a married woman. And her two brothers confront him, and he hightails it out of there, and he takes off and he moves down to Utah, which is where the history books start getting much clearer about his exploits. And in 1897, he gets into his first real trouble with the law, and he gets arrested for a burglary in Provo, Utah, and he's sent to Utah State Penitentiary at Salt Lake City. The amount of time that he was sentenced is irrelevant because on October 8th, 1897, him and three other inmates, including David Lant, escape. And they jump a guard and wrestle his gun away from him, and then they escape Browns Park, which is a huge area, about 13,450 acres, and it straddles the Colorado and Utah border, and was a major outlaw sanctuary and hideout for Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch Gang. And while it is claimed that he did run with the Wild Bunch gang for a little bit, it is also said that Butch Cassidy himself told Tracy to get lost more than once. So after being kicked out of Browns Park, they make their way to another outlaw hideout in Powder Springs, Wyoming. And right around the same time, a man named Patrick Lewis Swede Johnson, who was neither Swedish nor Irish, who was a fugitive for a murder in Thompson, Utah, was working for a man named Valentine Hoy, just south of Rock Creek, Wyoming. Now, while Johnson was working there, he recruited a 15-year-old boy named Willie Strang to learn the cattle trade. And I said Stang in the Wild Bunch episode, but it's Strang. And one day, Strang played a joke on Johnson and poured water on him while he was sleeping. And Johnson woke up and he was so furious that he started shooting at Strang's feet, like making him dance. However, one of these shots was less playful and got away from Johnson and Strang was shot in the spine and died in a few hours. Johnson and fellow ranch hand Jack Bennett then fled to Powder Springs where they met up with Tracy and Lamp. They knew that there was a posse out searching for them. The four made their way back to Browns Park. They told Bennett, who was not a fugitive, to get supplies, and he made his way to the Bassett Ranch. 
However, by the time that Bennett got to the ranch, word of the shooting had reached there, and they mistook him for the one that killed Strang. The sheriff was meant to apprehend them, but instead, a vigilante group tied the sheriff up so he couldn't stop him. They hanged Bennett right there on the porch. It is said that sheriff didn't put up much of a fight. Meanwhile, Valentine Hoy and a posse caught up with Tracy Lant and Johnson at Lodor Canyon outside of Browns Park. And Hoy moved forward ahead of the posse members, and Tracy yelled down to him from the top of the hill, quote, What kind of fool are you, Hoy? Get back down there before I blow your head off, end quote. But Hoy chose not to move, and Tracy made good on his word, only instead of shooting him in the head, he shot him in the heart. Hoy died instantly, and they escaped and made their way along Green River, but by the next day, they got surrounded by the posse, and despite Tracy not wanting to surrender, Lant and Johnson surrendered. Outnumbered two to one, Tracy begrudgingly agreed to surrender. Once Tracy, Lenton, and Johnson were captured, Johnson was brought back to Wyoming, where the killing originally happened, and spent two years in prison before he was acquitted for mishandling of evidence. Tracy and Lant were brought to Hans Peak to await trial for the murder of Valentine Hoy. Now, while they were in jail there, he wrote a poem that he gave to the local sheriff, a man named Sheriff Neiman, as a taunt. And the poem reads, We left the Salt Lake pen as the sun was setting low. We walked along the railroad track until our legs refused to go. But we struck Park City early, where the morning sunbeams lit, on our stripped pantaloons where a happy party sits. It's there we took to refuge in some jungles which stood near, and watched the brave policemen while around us they did steer. It's there we ate our lunches, and our weary limbs did rest, until the sun was sinking in the far and distant west. When we started on our journey for our home they call the Wall, where very few detectives ever dare to call. For there we have no sheep to herd, and corn we do not hoe, and for our kind of labor, old sheets is rather slow. Joe Bush is also harmless with his double-barreled gun, for where he came to Powder Springs, he was prepared to run. He is out for notoriety and not at all for gain. He may arrest a schoolboy or pull a hobo from a train. We claim to be no poets, but the truth we will plainly tell. For those two brave detectives who have by the wayside fell. Now just one word to cite some who for protection cry. Just vote for braver officers when the shallows homeward fly. Yours with kind love and best wishes. Harry Tracy. And when he speaks of the wall, he's talking about the hole in the wall. So they must have been trying to make a move for the hole in the wall in Wyoming. And while they were in Hans jail awaiting trial, they jumped Sheriff Neiman, took his keys and locked him in a cell while they made their escape. But they were captured shortly afterward and sent to a new prison in Aspen, Colorado, which was new and thought to be unescapable. And it's here that he pulled a move that was pulled by John Dillinger, like 30 years later, John Dillinger, a future episode nominee, they whittled a toy gun out of wood and wrapped it in tinfoil and held it up to the guards and made their escape. And after they made their escape, Tracy and Lant went their separate ways. And David Lant went into the military and he served with distinction in the Philippines and came back home and led a peaceful life. He was ultimately looking for a way out of the outlaw game and he found one. However... Tracy was just getting started and made his way back to Portland, Oregon, where he ran into a man named Dave Merrill. And the two of them went on this crime spree together. 
but Dave was apparently not very good at keeping a low profile, and after a job, he would go on spending sprees, and he attracted a bunch of attention, and he also attracted the attention of the law, and one day, a posse led by Sheriff Dan Wiener came to his mom's house to arrest him, and he rolled over immediately on Harry. When Wiener confronted Tracy on the streets at the corner of Market and 4th Street, they got into a shootout and Harry hopped aboard a slow-moving train and ordered the conductor at gunpoint to speed up while Sheriff Wiener ran alongside of the train. However, before Tracy could get away, someone pulled the emergency cord and the train came to a stop shortly after and Tracy leapt off the train and continued his shootout with the sheriff. A butcher named Albert Way saw this exchange and joined the fun and he grabbed his shotgun and shot Tracy and the charge of buckshot grazed Tracy's face. Tracy was stunned and knocked down and was finally apprehended, and both Tracy and Merrill were sentenced to the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem on March 22, 1899. Tracy, inmate number 4033, was sentenced to 20 years, but Merrill, inmate number 4089, was only sentenced to 15 for rolling over on Tracy. This difference in time never sat well with Tracy, and he would bring it up from time to time, and Merrill would always dismiss it, saying it was because Tracy got into a shootout with the sheriff. But Tracy remained suspicious for three years that Mary had cut a deal and ratted him out. Then finally, on June 9th, 1902, they made their escape. Here's how this went down. While they were in prison, they were locked up with this man named Charles Monty, who Tracy and Merrill made friends with. About a month before their escape, Monty was set free. And on a promise of payment, Monty was hired to break back into the prison on June 8th using rope and grappling hooks, like so this is out of a movie, and snuck into the foundry shop where Tracy and Merrill were working the next day and planted two 30-30 Winchester rifles under some supplies in the shop and snuck back out. And even though the mission worked and he was able to escape, he was found out later and was sentenced to life for his part in the escape. Why life, you might ask? How bad could it have been, right? Well, the next day, when the prisoners were being led to the foundry, they passed the point where the rifles were hidden. And the guard, a man named Frank Farrell, wasn't thinking anything was amiss and wasn't paying attention and didn't see when Tracy and Merrill sprang for the guns were armed within a blink of an eye. According to old inmates, Farrell had recently tied Tracy up and had lashed him. And according to Joseph Bunko Kelly in his autobiography, 13 Years in the Oregon Penitentiary, corporal punishment was very common back then. So Farrell turned back around to see Tracy pointing his rifle at him. And Tracy said, I'll teach you to hard time me and shot him point blank and kills him right there. From this point forward, it is on. Tracy turned around to fire at another guard, but was stopped by an inmate named Tom Ingram, who was doing life for killing his brother. And in the struggle, Tracy shot him in the leg. And Ingram's leg would ultimately need to be amputated, but he did get parted because of his service. After Tracy shot Ingram, he made his way to the wall and found a ladder that may or may not have been planted. And at that point, S.R. Jones, another guard, started shooting at him, but he missed, and Tracy did not, and Jones was shot and killed. They fired at another guard, a man named Duncan Ross, who was wounded but not killed. And next, another guard named B.F. Tiffany unloaded his shotgun but missed, 
and Tracy shot him, and he fell off the wall onto the side. He was wounded, but he wasn't killed. And after Tracy and Meryl had scaled the wall, they landed on the other side. They grabbed Tiffany and used him as a human shield as they made their way to the tree line. And once they made it to the tree line, they had no more use for Tiffany, and they shot him in the head. They fled the prison, and they started the longest manhunt up to that point in U.S. history of 58 days. On June 15th, they had forced a farmer named Charles Holtgreave at gunpoint to row them across the Columbia River that bordered Oregon and Washington. And once there, they started a pattern of running until they were hungry and they would break into someone's house while they were home, mind you, and demand that the woman of the house make them food. And then Tracy would demand that everybody sit down and eat because eating a good meal was important. Like, his moral compass was all over the place. And at one of these houses by Castle Rock, Washington, they had just finished their meal, which I'm sure was delicious. And Harry happened to look down at a paper and saw a story about him that happened to mention that Merrill had rolled over on him. So he finally knew the truth. And around June 28th, he confronted Merrill in the woods about it and told Merrill that he was going to kill him and gave Merrill the option of either being shot dead like a dog or fighting in a duel. And when I say duel, I mean what you think I mean, like back-to-back, walking 10 paces, the whole nine yards. And so, obviously, Merrill took the duel, but since Tracy already thought that Merrill was a sneaky traitor and thought he would cheat, Tracy, on the eighth step, turned around early and shot Merrill in the back. After falling, Tracy, for good measure, shot Merrill three times in the back of the head. Merrill's body was found shoved behind a log in Castle Rock three days later. Tracy then showed back up on June 1st alone, and on June 2nd, he went to the Capital City Oyster Company at South Bay, a short distance from Olympia, on Pudget Sound, and ordered the employees at gunpoint to first make him breakfast, which was bacon and eggs apparently, and then afterward tied up some of the employees and ordered Captain Clark, his son, and two others to take him via tugboat across the Sound to Seattle. He said he didn't want to get there until it was dark, so for them to take their time. And according to Clark, aside from being held at gunpoint, Tracy was very polite and joked around with them and even helped fix the boat's engine. He also told them in detail what had happened to Merrill, saying, quote, I read in the newspaper that Merrill had double-crossed me into the pen, and I figured he would turn on me again to save his own skin if he had the chance. So I killed him. That night, they landed on the other side of the Sound in Baylord, six miles from Seattle, and thanked the captain and even shook his hand. By this point, there wasn't a soul on the planet that didn't know about Tracy. And on June 3rd, 1902, the Seattle Daily Times wrote an article about Tracy with the infamous line, In all the criminal lore of the country, there is no record equal to that of Harry Tracy for cold-blooded nerve, desperation, and thirst for crime. Jesse James, compared to Tracy, is a Sunday school teacher. This was most likely the result of Tracy's exploits on the morning of July 3rd. While walking along the railroad tracks, a caretaker of the University of Washington campus saw him and called the sheriff. A posse was formed immediately, and in these days, posses were still made up of deputized citizens. One of these deputized citizens was newsman Louis Seffert, along with Carl Anderson and Charles Raymond. 
They pursued Tracy and followed him into a field by the tracks and came up to a large stump that one of them said that Tracy was behind. Just then, Tracy popped up from behind the stump and shot and killed Anderson and Raymond almost immediately. Seffert was shot at but missed, but he had the sense to play like he was hit and fell to the ground with his eyes cracked open, laying in the tall grass for five heart-pounding minutes until Tracy decided that they were all dead and moved away from the stump to a shack where he dodged a few shots from Deputy Jack Williams, then returned fire and killed Williams. The rest of the posse picked up their killed friends and loaded them into a wagon and got out of there. By this point, the reward for Tracy, dead or alive, is $6,000, and back then, that is the equivalent of $214,000 today. Shortly after that, on July 9th, after about a week of hijacking people's houses and forcing them to make him meals, he shows up at the farmhouse of the Johnsons, and Mr. Johnson was out working in the fields, and Tracy forced Mrs. Johnson to make him a meal. He then went on to tell her that he wasn't going to kill her and that he never hurt women and told her about his own mother who he had not seen in a very long time and apparently he had tears in his eyes. Mr. Johnson came back and he had two meals with the family before tying them up and making his escape. Now once gone, Mrs. Johnson was able to untie herself and run to Sheriff Cuddyhee's house and notify him that Tracy was just there. And the end came for Tracy about a month later when on August 6th, 1902, Tracy was surrounded in a barley field in Creston, Washington by a posse of civilians and in a shootout, Tracy got shot in the leg. Tracy goes down and tries to crawl away. And the posse doesn't dare come any closer. He might be able to see them from the bush, but they can't see him. And at a certain point in the night, they heard a single shot and nothing happened after that. Tracy, knowing that he had nowhere to run, took his own life by shooting himself in the head. Apparently, the authorities were not happy with the fact that a bunch of civilians were able to take him down. And the reward was finally paid out, but they only paid him $2,500 instead of the original $6,000. Tracy had escaped four prisons, committed 43 robberies, and killed approximately 25 men, mostly law enforcement officers and posse members. Tracy, at one point, had been the most notorious man in America. However, he had fallen into the annals of history, only to be remembered by hardcore crime enthusiasts, and now, you and me. He has shown up in some TV and movies, like the 1954 episode of Stories of the Century, where Tracy is portrayed by the actor Steve Brody, and the 1982 movie Harry Tracy Desperado, starring Bruce Dern, and I tried watching it, and it is unwatchable. Like, sorry Bruce Dern, I love you, but what were you thinking? So that's it. That's the story of Harry Tracy. That guy was one bad dude. And uh, yeah, a 58-day manhunt for this guy. Like I said, a lot of these guys, I kind of, I understand. And maybe I am kind of rooting for them a little bit. But this guy, I'm not. This guy was a bad guy, and he got what he deserved. Um, just had a, a wild ride throughout the entire West, you know, multiple states. And that always kind of fascinates me. These guys don't have cars, and they're just all over the place. Like, I live in one of the smallest states in the country, and, like, 45-minute drive, I'm like, ugh. Anyway, uh, Ryan at thestolengoodspodcast.com, thestolengoods.buzzsprout.com. Uh, check those things out. You can check out the Facebook page from the website and uh, leave a like on the Facebook page. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. Leave some stars. I'd really appreciate it. Spread the word. Let your friends know. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I enjoyed reading about this guy. It's fascinating to me. 
early law enforcement, the things that uh, these people were doing, the brazenness of what they were willing to do to get away from the law. And well, I don't know what we're going to do next week. We'll figure it out. I don't know. We might go back to a pirate. Um, I got I got a couple ideas for some outside-the-box outlaws that, that I want to bring to the table. So uh, we'll see where it goes. So until then, this is Ryan McCarthy saying I hope you have a great week, and I will talk to you later. <laughs>